You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Oil, coal, hydro, nuclear energy, natural gas, energy infrastructure, solar power, wind turbines. Regulators and policymakers and utilities are going to have to realize that the old model really isn't sustainable. Would you rather wait until it comes crashing down, or would you rather anticipate a transition? When we wanted to abolish slavery, we made compensation payments to slave owners. Maybe we have to do something like that to coal owners. For November 9th, 2022, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Everyone knows that the energy transition means replacing energy systems that produce carbon emissions with ones that don't, and most parts of the globe now have some sort of policy designed to improve energy efficiency and build more carbon-free energy systems and or to phase out their legacy fossil fuel assets. And I think most people can imagine, at least in general terms, what a clean, renewably-powered world might look like. What almost no one has figured out is how to coordinate the retirement of fossil-fueled assets with the deployment of clean zero-carbon replacements in such a way that both sets of systems remain relatively functional and affordable during the transition, let alone how to ensure that disadvantaged communities don't get left behind in the process. In several recent episodes, we have discussed some of the challenges we'll face in this messy middle of the transition. In episode 177, we contemplated the fact that there is probably no way to plan and execute the transition in a very deliberate fashion, and that we'll have to accept a certain amount of uncertainty about how it will proceed. And in episode 181, we discussed how there is probably no alternative but to expect a large degree of direct government intervention in the process of the transition, because it's just too difficult and complex to leave everything up to the action of markets. But at the same time, there are some aspects of the transition that could be disastrous if we do not figure out how to orchestrate the retirement of dirty assets with the deployment of clean replacements. For just one example, we probably can't simply leave it up to the private sector to ensure that enough gasoline filling stations stick around to meet the needs of people still driving internal combustion engine vehicles, while we're still in the process of building up enough EV charging infrastructure to meet the needs of drivers who are going electric. Some elements of the transition will be far more successful if they are planned and guided. Or so our guest in this episode argues. Emily Grubert, an associate professor of sustainable energy policy and of civil and environmental engineering and earth sciences at the University of Notre Dame in Indiana, who you'll remember from her previous appearances in episodes 140 and 145, co-authored a paper earlier this year with Sarah Hastings-Simon in which they detail some of the risks of what they call the mid-transition and explain how we should be going about designing some deliberate paths through it. I think it's an extremely important contribution to the energy transition literature because it tackles a topic that has received far too little attention, and I'm so pleased that Emily was willing to return to the show to share her thoughts about it. This conversation left me with much to think about, and I'm sure it will for you too. Then in the news segment, we'll recognize some accelerated retirements announced for coal plants in Australia and Germany. We'll salute a renewable milestone for Greece. We'll compare and contrast the deployment of renewables in China and the U.S. And we'll note the insurance sector's continued withdrawal from financing and insuring fossil fuel projects. But before we go to the interview, announcements, 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 we'd like to welcome our latest group subscribers. 
UNOPS combines the best of the UN and the private sector to provide infrastructure, procurement, and project management services for a more sustainable world. Environment and Climate Change Canada is the lead federal department for a wide range of environmental issues in Canada, and the Skagit Valley Clean Energy Cooperative aims to help accelerate the energy transition in Skagit County in Washington State. Welcome all. And now, our conversation with Emily Grubert, recorded October 3rd, 2022. So let's bring her back into the conversation now. Welcome back, Emily, to the Energy Transition Show. Thanks so much, Chris. Really glad to be here. In January of 2022, you and your co-author, Sarah Hastings-Simon, who just recently joined us, actually, in episode 180 to talk about the energy transition in Alberta, published an interesting paper titled, Designing the Mid-Transition, a review of medium-term challenges for coordinated decarbonization in the United States. And in it, you tackle a problem that I think has really not gotten adequate attention, which is how to coordinate the retirement of fossil-fueled assets with replacement of them using clean zero-carbon assets. And that aspect of the transition is bound to be tricky, as I think we are already beginning to see. We've discussed some aspects of it in recent episodes, such as episode 160 about coal buyouts and episode 178 about how the transition will unfold. And you gave this period a name, the mid-transition. So why don't you start us off here by explaining what that concept means and what's so tricky about it? Yes, essentially what we mean by the mid-transition is this period in between kind of a stable fossil fuel-dominated energy system and a future stable clean energy-dominated system. In between, what we assert essentially is that both systems are operating at scales that are sufficient to constrain the other, which could lead to some fairly significant maladaptations. So essentially, in a situation where you have a fossil system and a clean energy system that are working together to provide the energy services we need, but neither one is big enough to do it by itself, and each of them is actually big enough to constrain the other in ways like how we optimize rate design or how we think about ramping and things like this. That's the mid-transition. And I think what's really important about the mid-transition to plan for and to really try to understand as we enter it since it probably will last a few decades at least, is that during the mid-transition, we'd actually expect things to be harder than they are on either end. So because you have the situation where both systems are kind of adapting to a situation that's not really designed for them, we actually probably would expect this period to work less well than either the historic system we're leaving behind or the future system that we're going toward. I think what's really important about that is that it has a lot of risks in terms of how people view the energy system and the energy transition specifically. Things that are probably the result of this mid-transition issue of maladaptation and two systems constraining each other might really be seen as fundamental characteristics of a clean energy system and create resistance to that change. They also could potentially see us really struggling to meet some of the challenges that are imposed by climate change, where we basically have two systems that are now both too small to fully meet the needs that we have at the same time as everything's getting a little bit harder to do. So essentially, we've got two systems. They're both too small to do everything. They're both too big to not have to account for. And that is something that is going to be really challenging. I think where we get to a kind of optimistic place in the paper is that there's a huge planning opportunity here. And by being very, very explicit and very honest with people about what the mid-transition means and about the challenges that come along with the mid-transition, we can probably anticipate some of the most tricky pieces of that and try to mitigate them before they happen. So things like 
if we start to see really diseconomies of scale as the fossil system gets smaller, for example, we might not know exactly what that looks like, but we can probably anticipate that we'll have some issues with price spikes or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. Similarly, we can probably anticipate that the clean energy system is occasionally going to need more fossil backup than we think right now, stuff like that. And so trying to anticipate all those issues and really planning explicitly for how we're going to meet them and explaining to people what's going on is going to be pretty important here. So what is the state of the literature on this topic? There's honestly not a lot. What's kind of funny about this paper is that we set out to write a review of all of the work that was out there on how to manage the mid-transition. And what we found was there really isn't a whole lot. I think there's been a bit of a tendency both in policy spaces and in more analytical spaces to focus on the huge, huge challenge of how we build out the clean energy system. That's obviously a really worthy goal. It's a huge amount of infrastructure. This is faster than we've done things before in many ways. And it's new types of things that we haven't necessarily seen working at scale before. But alongside that, I think what is left out almost entirely is what it actually means to shut down about 80% of the energy system in the form of fossil infrastructure. So we don't see a ton of research and modeling on potential price transitions. We don't see a ton on capital investment, on where we might see remediation and reclamation triggers. So for example, if you start to close down gas pipelines, there's a lot of end of life stuff that happens there that costs money that people might not be planning on at the moment. Mm-hmm. Labor and training is another one. I think we talk a lot about what it actually means to transition workers out of the fossil industry, but we leave out the point that you know these are high hazard infrastructures. And so if you don't have the A-team still on the line until the very last day that these infrastructures are working, that's pretty dangerous. So how do we make sure that we still have the capacity to inspect these systems? We still have people that know how to work on them and know how to respond to emergencies that might become more common, both as the system faces a climate that it hasn't worked in and it faces a scale it hasn't worked in. So lots of things like that that are probably actually pretty answerable if we think about them, but haven't really been a focus of the literature so far. Well, when you say they're missing from the literature, I'm taking your word on it because, holy crap, there were a lot of references in that paper. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of analogies. And I think that that's one thing that is kind of useful about this space is you can look to other industries and you can look to the way that people talk about kind of in the abstract what might be happening. So we know a lot about where to start. We just haven't really done the research yet. And that's why I'm kind of optimistic that if we as a research community sat down and really started to ask ourselves these questions, we'd probably come up with some pretty good answers, but we have to actually do it. Well, just looking at that bibliography, I mean, I'm sure that if the answers were in the lit, you would have found it. So We tried. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was truly amazed to look through the last, I don't even know how many pages that going, oh my gosh, this is all references. So where do you see evidence that an uncoordinated transition will lead to these problems? Yeah, and this is where I think it's really interesting to look to some historical examples. I think the most clear, and again, this is from a U.S. perspective, but the most clear evidence from the energy sector so far has really really been the coal transition, where we've seen a pretty significant piece of that transition having already happened over the last decade or so. So the amount of energy that coal provides in the U.S. has dropped by about half in the last 10 years. And what we see is massive bankruptcy discharges of pensions and environmental remediation obligations. We see sort of sudden bankruptcies and massive layoffs with no plans and a lot of really very significant hardship in the communities that are experiencing these really pretty last minute transitions that aren't Mm -hmm. planned and that there's not a lot going on. 
in the power sector, what's kind of interesting is that even when they're coal plants, we've seen slightly better performance, I think, and not to say that it's good, but partially because a lot of the time people at a coal plant are part of a bigger utility that maybe has additional facilities. There's been a little bit more attention to at least making sure that the workforce has somewhere to go. That's not universal by any means, but I can come up with one or two examples there that I can't really in the mining sector very easily. But beyond the energy sector, I think some of the really important historical analogs, at least in the United States, are essentially the collapse of the steel industry back in the 80s. And before that, the collapse of the textile industry as well, where you see a ton of contemporary literature from unions and other people at the time basically saying, if you just give us six months, a couple years of heads up that this is happening, we can probably manage it. But this really sudden, just one day the plant is closed type of transition has been disastrous. And we really still see that in, honestly, the way that the Rust Belt still exists in the United States. Yeah. In fact, that's a point that came up in our conversation with Justin Gway about coal buyouts Mm -hmm. in episode 160, about how there's a lot of pretty talk out there about the importance of just transitions and how everybody needs to make sure this happens. There's a whole lot of literature suggesting that that isn't the way things normally go. Right. And I think we're going to have to work a lot harder to avoid that outcome because that is the default path is that we just let industries collapse. We just let people lose their jobs. We just let towns get hollowed out. Yeah. And we just let jobs go offshore or wherever labor is cheapest. And I get the question sometimes about why we shouldn't let that happen in this particular case, like aside from a lot of the implications just for communities that have supported the energy system for a long time, you do hear the argument occasionally that's like, look, climate change has been clear for a long time. Like people had their chance why not just kind of see where this goes? And I take some issue with that framing just in the sense that I think we should be trying to be as supportive of people as we can. But indeed, it's a fair question to ask why we spend so much time thinking about fossil workers and not people that are getting displaced by climate change, for example. Sure. That said, I think what's really different about the fossil energy system is, again, this infrastructure supports about 80% of energy use. That's true for the US. That's true for the world at large. And so just letting it go away is not only really disruptive for everybody that you uses energy, but because these are hazardous industries, not having people really managing this decline could be incredibly dangerous. Even in times when we have a lot of investment and we have an expectation of growth in the fossil industry, we see explosions or plant accidents and things like this. Having that happen kind of simultaneously all over the world without people that know what they're doing, we could really see some very, very dangerous circumstances in addition to a lot of the challenges we'd see from the energy system collapsing. So certainly take the point that there's a lot of other industries that are threatened by climate change or have dealt with long-term underinvestment and so forth. Part of why I tend to advocate for universal programs for these types of things, but we really do need to manage this one pretty carefully. Yeah, and fair enough, all of that's true in the U.S. context. And of course, this isn't just a phenomenon in the U.S. We're seeing it globally now, as we discussed in episode 183 on the global energy crisis. And actually, I'd argue that the global transition from coal to natural gas that took place over the past 20 years or so is further evidence of your argument, because when Russia withdrew its gas supply from Europe, it resulted in all these same things, a loss of resilience in power generation, soaring costs for heating and electricity, hundreds of billions of euros of unfunded obligations that got pushed onto national balance sheets, and an unprecedented wave of direct government interventions into energy markets just to keep the power flowing and prevent social unrest. Now, 
I understand that you wrote this stuff more with the phase out of coal in the U.S. in mind, but would you agree that the shoe fits with respect to the global transition to gas? Oh, absolutely. And I think that that's a really interesting thing about mid-transition in general is that when we framed what that meant, it was really in the context of a fossil to clean system. But I think we go into this a bit in the paper that it also applies just in general when you have a normative target for getting somewhere that you're not currently, whether that's coal to gas or something else. And a lot of these transition issues apply in general. I think with the global transition from fossil to clean, there's probably a lot more work that needs to be done at very fine scales everywhere. Because like I said a moment ago, it's not just 80% of the energy system in the US, it's 80% of the energy system in the world is fossil based. If we're going to meet kind of mid century targets for getting to zero emissions, that essentially implies that all of this infrastructure needs to be retired or very extensively repurposed in the next 30 years or so. I know we talked a lot about coal as an example of where we've seen this already, but the argument is really around the entire fossil system. But I think this point about coal to gas is also really interesting because when we look at the United States even, probably the most significant energy transition we've seen in the last 20 years is kind of conventional oil and gas to unconventional oil and gas. And that maybe wasn't quite as visible to people because the end point commodity is the same, but there was actually a very significant transition there as well that we might be able to learn something from. But yeah, it's not necessarily certain that you actually have to get to a clean system by transitioning. You know, that's a great point. And I think it's an underappreciated one because, you know, I was a serious student of peak oil. And those of us who were serious students of the topic understood that the initial formulations of the peak oil hypothesis from M. King Hubbard and later Campbell and Larere and others we're all talking about conventional oil. And Hubbard correctly in the late 1940s created a model to show that U.S. conventional oil production would peak around 1970, 1972, which it did. Mm -hmm. And then later models that he and Campbell and Larere came up with suggested that global conventional oil production would peak around 2000, 2000, plus or minus five years or so. And in fact, it peaked in 2005. And People who are not serious students of the subject just looked at price, or maybe they just looked at total oil volumes and said, oh, well, those guys were all wet because unconventional happened and price went down. Totally different resource. Yeah. Yeah. You guys really don't understand this, do you? Yeah. But that's a great analogy, actually, and I hadn't thought about it that way. What I really also like about the conversation about transitions, when people are a bit resistant to the notion of moving away from fossil fuels, it's always like, where are my Hubbard people at? Because, like, you know, (laughs) relying on a depletable fuel is actually it's another challenge in addition to the climate challenge. And yeah, we've used technology and all these sorts of things to get around that historically. But there are a lot of reasons to expect that this transition is going to happen one way or the other. Well, another interesting thing about the switch, and I don't want to belabor this point because it's kind of a side point, but one of the important things about the switch from conventional to unconventional oil and gas is that it materially increased the cost basis to make that switch. Yes. You know, back in the day, you could just put a drill bit straight down and hit a reservoir and produce oil from it for $10 a barrel. You cannot do that when you're injecting vast amounts of energy and sand and propant and water and then having to pump it all back out after you've fractured it and all that stuff. That's all energy. That's all cost. Yeah. And that raised up the global floor for the price of producing oil and later natural gas. Now, we did 
produced so much of it in such a short period of time that that drove costs down temporarily. But I think as we've now seen, especially since the Russia incursion, that's not an enduring cost decline, right? Right, right, yeah. <laughs> and so we have to be conscious of the fact that as we're transitioning from one fuel to another, whether it's from conventional oil and gas to unconventional or from coal to gas or from gas and oil and coal to renewables, we're looking at a whole variety of changes that have to take place. And those things will come with different cost structures. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also not to belabor the point too much, but the transition from something that really does have a lot of operational costs to something that is really concentrated in capital, I think is an underappreciated change in what we're seeing right now. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's easy for opponents of the transition to point at that and say, well, it's going to cost a lot of money in the next couple of years to build all this infrastructure. What they don't say is, and then 20 years from now, you're going to be enjoying free energy from it. (laughs) Yeah, hope so. (laughs) Well, yeah, but it's a different structure of cost, I guess is kind of the point. Yeah. So in preparation for this interview, I went back and re-listened to your first appearance on the show in episode 140. And I realized that you were already hinting at the challenges of the mid-transition back then. And that was a year before this paper was published. In that episode, you were thinking about the challenges of maintaining the natural gas supply and delivery system because we were talking about methane. And even as some communities are beginning to outlaw the use of natural gas in new buildings, and you were thinking about the challenges involved in keeping enough of the gas supply chain working to supply users that hadn't yet transitioned away from it, and how to keep gas affordable in the process, even though as you mentioned a little bit ago, certain economies of scale were probably likely to go away as some of this industry starts to retire, right? So was that part of your thinking in this paper? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm kind of obsessed with physical infrastructure, partially because I've spent a lot of time doing field trips to power plants and things like that. And going to the same power plant over the course of a decade or so and really seeing what it takes to keep a system like that open and Mm. that type of thing have made me really pretty interested in what it actually means when we start talking about steel on the ground. So I've been thinking about just what this looks like for a while in terms of what happens to the fossil infrastructure, because when you talk about getting to zero emissions, the kind of corollary to that that we don't say as explicitly a lot of the time is that all of the emitting infrastructure, something happens to it. It's no longer in use. And so really trying to think about what the implications of some of our climate goals are for the physical infrastructure that we currently rely on is just a big part of how I've been framing my general work on this for a while. This is also a pretty big part of how I put together a paper that I wrote in 2020 about what it would mean to actually require all the fossil fuel-fired power generators in the United States to close by the 2035 target for power sector decarbonization that then nominee Biden and now President Biden has put forward. Mm. So in that piece, I think what we see a lot in the US actually is that I concluded basically that a lot of that power generation infrastructure is sufficiently old that giving a decade of notice was enough for many of those facilities to actually reach a typical lifespan. And that's probably basically true for a lot of fossil infrastructure when we really look at a 2050 decarbonization timeline. Stuff is already pretty old, so we have a bit of an opportunity to replace it with the things that we want without necessarily having to grapple as much with stranded infrastructure as we might think we do. Mm-hmm. And then there are the physical, not just financial, unfunded liabilities to think about as well. Like yeah. we have these abandoned coal ash ponds, we have improperly abandoned oil and gas wells, we have tar sands, tailing ponds that just aren't built for long-term storage but are being used that way, likewise for long-term storage of nuclear waste. 
And really, these issues are just the beginning, I think, of what could happen and what we could see in an uncoordinated transition, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of the time people sort of assume, hey, the oil and gas industry is wealthy. There's a huge amount of money there. So what we see with some of the coal industry's transition is not going to happen there. There's plenty of money. That's not necessarily true by the time we get there. And so thinking very carefully about what those unfunded liabilities and the remediation needs are going to be is a huge, huge piece of this. I think just as a really local example, what happens to gas stations? Many of them have quite contaminated soil around them to the point that it would be quite difficult to build other things on there without quite expensive remediation efforts. I was a student at Stanford a while ago, and they had a gas station on campus that they ended up tearing down. And I'm going to get this maybe a little bit wrong, but effectively, the original plan was to put some housing on the site. And then people went and looked at the site and realized that that was not viable without essentially full soil replacement and all this sort of thing. It's a tiny example, but there are so many things like that that are going to be really, really challenging and maybe exist within a structure where all the money's kind of gone. So thinking about how we actually manage that, again, without creating and exacerbating existing environmental injustice issues without really doing a lot of damage to the environment and to people's health, things like that. This is partially why we need a plan, because at this point, there actually still is enough wealth in the system to spend some of that on the transition. If we wait until basically companies start going bankrupt, selling off assets to companies that don't have the financial wherewithal to actually handle some of these issues, that sort of thing, we end up essentially socializing all of these costs at a time where we probably don't have the capacity to do much. The thing with remediation that I think is also pretty interesting is that remediation needs are often where the fossil infrastructure actually was. So when we think about if we tried to put in a grand plan for ensuring that people maintain jobs and kind of our skills matched and location matched with work that needs to be done, there's potentially a really significant opportunity to transition people out of these industries working on a lot of the environmental reclamation issues. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, obviously the coal industry and its winding down is the poster child for this issue, right? Yeah. Because we we saw not only, I mean, it hasn't just been one instance of like, here's a major coal company that had a lot of liabilities on its balance sheet, especially for things like retirement and healthcare for its retired employees. Yep. And then it sold off to private equity who came in and just basically liquidated all the assets, left nothing but the liabilities. And then, oops, it's bankrupt now. Yep. And oops, there's nobody left to pay for this stuff. And that happens to all sorts of assets that are just actual physical sites that need environmental remediation. And as you said, suddenly there's no money left to cover them. Yeah. And yeah, that's the thing about physical infrastructure. It's still there, <laughs> whether anyone feels responsible for it or not. Yeah. And yeah, I feel like watching the coal industry for the last decade plus, I've been feeling like I'm just haunting people for a while being like, boo, the oil and gas industry is a lot bigger <laughs> and the exact same thing is going to happen. We're already starting to see that a bit just with much larger companies selling off assets to private equity or very, very small companies. And we're not quite at the point where that's an irreversible piece of what the oil and gas transition is going to look like. But if we're not careful, it's very likely that this much bigger industry might go the same direction. And the frustrating part about all that is that there are, in fact, some laws and provisions yes. that require these companies, in theory, to set money aside for the remediation of the sites that they've contaminated or destroyed, right? Yeah. And what happens to those monies? 
Yeah, I think the basic headline there is just it's almost never nearly enough for what actually ends up needing to happen. And sometimes that money just goes away. In self-bonding environments, if there's no money left, there's no money to get once the company goes bankrupt or something like that. But in many, many applications, largely because of the way that we do cost analysis, use discount rates and things like that, people haven't necessarily had to go through end of life with a lot of these types of assets before. And it's almost universally more expensive than people planned when they created some of these set-asides for how much money it needs to be. So I think that that is actually also a really big piece of this. We've done some end-of-lifing, but a lot of this infrastructure, because it is so big and because it's hard to cite and that sort of thing, tends to kind of be revitalized or otherwise pass on to something else, or we've only gone through one generation. So for example, Powder River Basin Coal has really only been around since the 70s. Those power plants last about 50 years. We're going through our first iteration of shutting some of those down. And so we're not that familiar with what end of life looks like. And a lot of the time, there's just not enough money in those funds. Mm -hmm. Well, in addition to all these sort of unfunded liabilities we've been talking about, there are some other constraints on the mid-transition. And I'd like to dig into some of those now because I don't think many people have really thought about that as you and Sarah have. So what are some of the notable ones? I think the one that I am the most worried about kind of beyond the surficial level ones of just what happens when you start to see a lot of high hazard infrastructure coming into a place where nobody wants to work there and there's not a huge amount of a future necessarily. Like basically, how do you make sure that people that really are committed to making sure these systems are operating safely are actually doing that when you can kind of see 30 years from now, this might not be a thing anymore. Mm. Beyond that, though, I think that the biggest risk that scares me is really what I was talking about in the beginning, where there are a lot of issues that are fundamental to the transition period that are not actually really attributable to clean energy necessarily. But because the thing that people will see changing is clean energy coming online, A lot of those issues, many of which are actually really intolerable, so power outages, really significant issues like that, people might be like, oh, you know, this is a wind turbine or this is solar energy or something like that, when generally... I think what we can kind of see coming is that that's partially a mid-transition issue where, again, you have this new system that's still kind of learning how to be a thing, and then an old system that's kind of learning how not to be a thing all at the same time. And then (laughs) on top of that, you've got climate change where we're learning how to do all of this while we're in a situation that is not all that easy to predict and is actually pretty far outside of the design parameters that we've used in the past. So I think to maybe try to say that a little bit more concisely, I'm just really worried that some of the effects of climate change and the transition period will be assigned to clean energy in a way that will make people very resistant to this transition. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, extensive show notes, interview transcripts, the text of the news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. 
Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. Coal power continues to lose steam in Australia. Listeners may recall that in News Item 6 of Episode 170, we reported that in February, tech billionaire Mike Cannon-Brooks, Australia's third richest person, joined with international fund manager Brookfield to make a takeover bid for Australian energy giant AGL. Their intention was to force AGL to set stronger emissions reduction targets and close its remaining coal-fired power stations sooner than planned. AGL's board rejected the bid, but Cannon Brooks said the partners would not be deterred and were still interested in the company. Less than two months later, Cannon Brooks acquired more than 11% of AGL's shares, making him its largest shareholder. And in late September, the company announced that it would close its Loy Yang A power station in Victoria in 2035, 13 years earlier than it said it would back in February. The plant is Australia's dirtiest, responsible for more than 3% of the country's emissions. The day prior to the announcement, the Queensland state government unveiled a plan to shift the state away from coal power by 2035. The Climate Council, which claims to be Australia's leading climate change communications organization, said AGL's decision is proof that coal is no longer commercially viable in Australia. And as we reported in the news of episode 170, Origin Energy, a major integrated electricity generator and electricity and natural gas retailer in Australia, announced in February that it would close its 2.9 gigawatt Araring coal-fired power plant, the largest coal-fired power station in the country. Item 2. Coal retirements are accelerating in Germany as well. On October 4th, RWE, Germany's largest power producer, said it will advance its coal phase-out by eight years and will invest billions of euros to accelerate the energy transition and end... Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Chris Nelder creates the show, Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant, and Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.